0: Turning your copy of the Scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would please, to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3. This is our last week in the book of Jonah. We're really focusing on Jonah, chapter 4, but I think it's best that we actually start with the last verse of chapter 3 because that sets up the context in which we find it and understand, helps us understand exactly what's going on at the time. And so... I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10 through the end of the book, the end of chapter 4 and verse 11. If you are able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? This is what the word of God says. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The subtitle of this sermon series is Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. If that strikes you as clever wordsmithing, you have God to thank for that, because that phrase, Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment, is taken directly from the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 13, where God, through the pen of the Apostle James, talks about the sin of partiality or of favoritism. In fact, I think it's worth going there, so you can keep your place in Jonah, chapter 4, But turn over uh, just for a moment to James chapter 2. Because I think it's important that we understand the context in which that phrase comes and how it actually relates to our finishing up of the book of Jonah today. So James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing... Comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You sit over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor men. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Say it with me, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so... What James is talking about here is the sin of partiality, the sin of favoritism. Typically, what he's illustrating is according to class, right? If a rich person comes in and a poor person comes in, don't show special honor to the rich person and set aside the poor person. Don't judge people or treat them differently according to class. But it really can be broadened to say don't judge people and treat them differently according to anything, right? Class, color, size, you name it. Don't judge people and treat them differently at all. And Jonah is a great example of what not to do as a child of God because he was treating the Ninevites uh, differently than God would have him treat them. He was treating the Ninevites differently than he would his own people. And so as we get into our text today, uh, we're going to see what not to do from the book of Jonah once again. And so let's go back to Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them and did not do it. Now, I really believe that our church, Grace Fellowship Church, is the most responsive church family I've ever been a part of. I mean, by and large, it's a joy to be a part of Grace Fellowship, which is not a perfect church, but a very responsive church, because we hear the word of God and do it. Not perfectly. No, none of us are perfect. We grow, we change, we seek each other's forgiveness. We seek the forgiveness of the Lord uh, all the time. But by and large, our church family loves the word of God and responds to it, responds to him. You, quite frankly, are a joy to preach to and a joy to shepherd. Jonah, as you may recall, went into the city of Nineveh as God commissioned him to do. He preached to them, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He certainly said more, but he didn't say less. That's what we're told in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4. And the people respond. They hear him. They repent. His sermon reaches the king, and he makes a proclamation throughout the entire nation calling for them to repent. The preaching was in every way, shape, and form effective. But Jonah's response is not like mine when my preaching has an impact on someone's life. He's not happy. He's not grateful to God that the Lord used him as his mouthpiece to preach God's truth. He's not grateful for a responsive audience in Nineveh. No, instead, he's ticked. Look at Jonah 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do, and he did not do it. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Why, pray tell, would a preacher be upset that his preaching was not only heard, but heeded? We don't have to wonder. Jonah tells us in the very next verse. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Now, that's important to note because it's an insight into part of the account we didn't have in earlier chapters of the book, right? Apparently, Jonah didn't just get on a ship and head to Tarshish. Apparently, he not only acted in rebellion against God, but prayed in rebellion against God because Jonah is reminding God that he told him this would happen. Remember what I said when I said? I knew this would happen. Look at verse 2. It says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now, there's no tone of voice in the text, but I'm convinced that's the tone in which he used it. I know this is how you roll, man. I know you're patient, you're kind, you're slow to anger, you're probably going to relent from disaster. The people responded to Jonah's preaching, and Jonah was hacked, and here's why. At first glance, you can see in the beginning chapters of the book, Jonah moving from, I ain't going, to going, right? And you can call the matter settled. In fact, you might remember when we opened up this sermon series, I said, it's kind of odd to spend time in the book of Jonah. Not many people preach through the book of Jonah. In fact, what people do remember about the book of Jonah is usually from what? From a children's Sunday school class. And usually as they talk about the account of Jonah usually it ends in chapter 2 or chapter 3. And so people say, yeah, Jonah was commissioned by God to go and preach. He said he didn't want to go, so he got on a ship, and then a storm came that was sent by God, and the sailors threw him overboard and into the sea, and the sea calmed itself, and uh, the Lord appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish, and he repented and realized his ways. The moral of the story is do what God says, don't get eaten, or do what God says so we can please him in all of our days. And therefore, since he repented, he was puked up onto dry land and everybody lived happily ever after. Usually people can say that much. Sometimes they go on to the next chapter and they say in Jonah chapter 3. And then Jonah, having been through all of that, having seen the error of his ways, then does go to Nineveh and does preach to the Ninevites and the Ninevites hear and they repent And then people live happily ever after. But not many people look at the cliffhanger of an ending that we see in Jonah chapter 4 and realize that it really doesn't resolve and it's actually very frustrating. And so we look at this and we realize this is a problem. Why would somebody share the word of God and be upset when it's heard and heeded? On a national level. None of my sermons have ever made it onto C-SPAN. Hasn't happened. Uh, If it did, I don't know how I'd feel. I think I'd be... I guess I'd be encouraged. Wow, the Word of God can go forth to more people. Great. Imagine sharing the gospel with someone because that's your duty to do. You've been commissioned to share the gospel. You've been commissioned to be a witness. You share the gospel to someone in your life, a neighbor, a family member, a co-worker, a friend, a roommate, a classmate, whatever... And they listen, and they take interest in what you said, but you are low-key upset. You were just trying to do what God told you to do, but you kind of didn't really want it to take. You were content for them to get the judgment, the condemnation, the punishment that was coming to them because you have a history with them or because of the damage that they've caused you or others or because they've been injurious to you or because of what they think or where they stand or what they advocate for. You're like, yeah, I will share the gospel because I'm supposed to, but if it doesn't work, I would not like be so sad about that. Which brings us to our first point. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, so neither should you. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, so neither should we. Neither should we. We shouldn't either. I think it's important for us to understand that God is perfect in every way, consistent in every way, no more one thing than another. So as you look at the attributes of God, he's just, he's merciful, he's kind, he's mighty, he's loving and lowly and patient and the sovereign ruler of all the universe. There's no quantitative difference between the attributes of our great God. Like if you measure his love, he's a solid 10. If you measure his grace... And his mercy, he's right up there with an eight. If you measure his justice, he's a 7.5. But today, actually, it's a little different. Like, he doesn't change. There's no quantitative difference. He's no more loving than just. He's more, no more just than merciful. He's no more merciful than patient. He is all of those things perfectly all the time. Uh, there's no quantitative difference. But he does seem to have a preference for mercy over justice. Does that make sense? He does seem to have a preference. He's both merciful and just, but he takes pleasure in one over the other. In fact, God will judge the wicked, but he doesn't delight in doing so. In fact, he'd rather they repent. He actually has a preference. Uh, We read in the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 18, verse 23, uh, the Lord asks a rhetorical question. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? That's a rhetorical question implying, no, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He actually goes on to state, he actually not only doesn't take pleasure in their destruction, but has a preference that they not be destroyed. Again, verse 23, it's in your outline. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not, what does it say? Rather, that he should turn from his way and live. Not only does God not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, he actually has a preference that he not have to do that. He doesn't apologize for doing that. He will punish the wicked. He's perfectly holy and perfectly just, and he will send people to hell because that's what they deserve. He also won't apologize for it, but he also won't smile about it. It doesn't bring the Lord joy to do that. He takes no pleasure in doing it. He's doing it because it's right. He's doing it because he's right. He's doing it because he's holy, because he's blameless and he's pure, and because that's what they deserve. But he does not take pleasure in it. In fact, on the contrary, when someone receives God's mercy, he is elated. I had a whole section of this sermon dedicated to Zephaniah chapter 3. Had to chop it because of time, but I would encourage you to spend time in Zephaniah 3. If you ever doubt that the sovereign Lord of the universe is an emotional God, read Zephaniah chapter 3. You have to understand that the emotions that you have are yet another example of how you're created in the image of God. We serve a God who is holy and just, and we see him become elated. We see him angry. We see him uh, longing. We see Jesus Christ himself, right, crying over Jerusalem, not saying, fine, burn, baby, burn, but saying, oh, I've longed to gather you in as a mother hen gathers chicks under her wings. I've longed to do that, but you're not willing. We see an emotional, emotional God, and Zephaniah 3 is one of those chapters where you can see that on display. And verse 17 says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Lord is willing to punish the evildoers and he does not apologize for it. But when someone is saved, when someone comes to saving faith, when someone uh, is, responds to the Lord's uh, salvation, offer the gospel with, with faith and repentance. Oh, he rejoices with gladness. He quiets you by his love. He exalts over you with singing, there's a party in heaven. Luke 15 contains uh, parables, all of which, three parables, all of which have the same theme. I've said it before. Lost, found, party. Lost, found, party. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son. Lost, Found party. Verse 7, Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be what? More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. I would say this It's not exciting to God when people get what they deserve. It's actually kind of boring. It's just like math, right? Both sides check out. You do something, you deserve this, you get that. This does not bring God joy and pleasure. It's just, it is what it is. He does it because it's right. He doesn't hold back. He's not sorry for it. But there's no joy that comes with that. God's like, that's easy, bro. That, that, they die in their own sin and they're apart from me and they're cast into hell for all eternity with no means of escape. Blah, blah, blah. They did that themselves. This is too easy. But here's the thing. When that doesn't happen... When God shocks the watching world by taking a sinner like you or like me, granting us salvation, giving us the gift of faith. It's like he's saying this. Let's make this interesting. Riddle me this. I'll tell you what. I'll have my son pay for your crimes instead of you so you don't have to pay, but I still get paid. Wait, I'm not done. And I'll tell you what, even though he dies, I'll have him defeat death, so he'll rise after a period of time. And since he dies and rises, you will die and rise as well. That's worth celebrating. That doesn't make mathematical sense. That's way outside the box. And that's why God's like, watch this. Watch what I do. Watch me snatch hell-deserving, hell-bound people out of the fire. And not just give them a place of neutrality, but give them a place of esteem as I adopt them into my family and invite them to my table and they're sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's worth celebrating. God is spirit Those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. He doesn't have a face. If he did, it would bring a smile to it. I've often thought perhaps that's a key reason God says what he says in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. A pretty popular verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to what? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God calls us to value both justice and mercy. Those are two valuable attributes that he himself embodies. But there's a love and affection we're called to have for mercy that won't coexist with a love for justice. It's interesting to see that God calls us to do justly but not love justly. Right? Only love people who deserve your love. He doesn't say that. It's interesting to see that God calls us to do justly, but not love justice. Having an inordinate affection for justice all the time, every time. No ifs, ands, or buts, no excuses. Everybody gets what they deserve, no more, no less. No, here God says, do justly. Christians should be known as people who are just people. Do what is right. Operate with a biblically informed sense of right and wrong, but don't love justice in and of itself. Instead, love justice mercy and if you're doing justly and loving mercy then you will walk humbly with your god if you're doing justly and loving justice that will not lead to walking humbly with your god jonah loved him some justice loved it loved it so much that he was ticked when his preaching was effective because he would have rather they perish Love justice so much that he plants himself outside the city, built himself his own box seats, hoping for a front row seat to watch what would happen to the city. He preaches, they repent, and yet he's still like, yeah, maybe it won't take. And he sits there and he's watching and stewing and watching the city, hoping for a different outcome. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. There's no question. God tells us emphatically in no uncertain terms that he doesn't. He says so himself. What about you? Do you take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked? If you do... You didn't get that from God because He's not that way. I'd like to ask you what I think is a hard question. Uh, I intentionally didn't put it in your outline because I didn't want you to get to it before I did. (laughs) Control freak much? (laughs) And so I'd actually like you to if you would i'd actually like you to take it down so if you have a pen or a pencil or a crayon or a marker or something i'd i'd actually like you to write it down if you don't have that maybe you can take out your phone and text it to yourself or put it in a note or email it to yourself i i want you to see it i want you to hear it as i say it it's my small way of hoping the lord would use as many of our God-given senses as possible, right? Our ears as we hear it, our sight as we see it, even our sense of touch as we write it or type it. And so if you would, get out your outline or your phone or a piece of paper and, um, and here we go. Write this down and consider it. For whom are you glad There is a hell. On the one hand, you're thankful to not be going there. But on the other hand, there are people you're pretty happy that they are. It could be a, somebody very close to you. It could be just a group of people that you know you disagree with. For whom would you prefer that they receive judgment instead of the mercy that you've received? You're like, I just want them to stop. Like I'll, I'll take either. They can stop because God changes their hearts or they can stop because they receive the judgment they deserve. But i got to be honest, Pete, judgment would be like kind of cool given the fact that they are what they are or do what they do or think what they think or say what they say, and it just drives you. Uh, we'd just be so better off without them. And quite frankly, they have it coming. And that's the voice of Jonah. That's not the voice of Jesus. If I take pleasure when someone receives the judgment they deserve, I'm not like God. It's that difficult tension, right, where we long to see Less evil in our world, less evil in our life. And so it's rejoicing in perhaps evil being somewhat eradicated, right? It's a a sign of things to come. We're we're glad that happens, but we also as Christians don't have the liberty to sing ding-dong, the witch is dead. And so we're grateful when the Lord advances goodness, just things that are good in this world, but still don't rejoice over the fact that somebody meets an untimely death and is sitting in the hell that they deserve, that you and I also deserve, but are not going to because of God's mercy. If I take pleasure when someone receives the judgment they deserve, I'm not like God. Something that's come to my mind a lot as I've spent time in the book of Jonah for this series is how closely we need to guard our hearts. So our Identity in Christ isn't replaced by anything else. And that's our second point. Sometimes due to circumstances beyond my control, which I kind of realize i got to stop saying, like aren't most circumstances beyond my control? Why is that? A th- anyway, sometimes due to circumstances, it becomes easy to be defined by the world around us or impacted by the circumstances that have befallen us. You need to understand that your identity is constantly challenged. Constantly uh, by issues and events and tragedies and events taking place in the world around us, in our community, in our nation, where we live. Maybe never more so than in the last 18 months, right? Where do you stand? Mask or no mask? Trump or no Trump? Vaccine or no vaccine? All of these require careful thought and attention. It's good to think through these things. It's good to pray about these things. It's sometimes amusing to discuss these things. But be sure you know that as you interact with the most important issues of our day, come what may, whatever they may be, as you do that, there will exist a temptation for you to switch your identity from Christ to something or from Christ to some group. Or, and before you know it, far, far, far from your mind is the fact that you're a Christian. It's just one of those things that you are. But because you're spending so much time really thinking through this one thing or talking through this one thing or even praying through this one thing, you decide to land in a camp and that's where you are and oh yeah, P.S., I'm also a Christian. And what happens there is there's a deadly switch that takes place where my primary identity becomes my secondary identity and the primary place on the throne of my heart is something else. Insert anything, really, is something else. And far, far, far from my mind is the fact that I'm a child of God. Far from my mind is the fact that you're the, that I'm the recipient of mercy. And therefore, the last thing on my mind is, Lord, save people. Or, God, reach people with your gospel. Or, Christ, use me to advance your kingdom. And this problem is rooted in a misplaced allegiance to something other than Christ. It's all an identity problem. I think this is probably why the Bible is replete with warnings with admonitions uh, to not take lightly what we think or how we feel or how that affects our identity, which impacts what and even who we value. I put some examples in your outline. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You're like, wow, that's like pastoral hyperbole. Really? My heart from that flow the springs of life. Quite frankly, what the author is saying is, Guard your heart. Keep an eye on that because everything you think about life, everything you discern, your values are going to be seen through a worldview that you will have on your heart and your mind. So guard that heart because from it flows all the issues of life. And that's why you should keep it vigilantly. Proverbs 23.7 says this, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Identity. As somebody thinks, that's who they are. Romans 12 in the New Testament, verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So again, don't allow this world to be that which is affecting you. Don't allow this world and external circumstances to be working outside in, but instead be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's inside out. So that you might, and then he gives a reason why. So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, if the change is happening from the inside out, we'll be better able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable. And he's saying, don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed. That, we've said it before, that word in the Greek, transformed, is metamorphoo, which makes you think of the word metamorphosis, which makes you think caterpillar butterfly. Right? Complete transformation, not like small caterpillar, big caterpillar. Complete caterpillar, butterfly, complete transformation. That's the type of transformation that God calls us to as Christians. But it doesn't happen from the outside in, it happens from the inside out. By all indications, Jonah cared a lot about his people. That's a good thing. By all indications, Jonah cared a lot about his country. That's not a bad thing. But it became part of his identity, so much so that he would actively rebel against God as a prophet. And when it became part of his identity, those good things became God things. And they ascended to a place in his heart that they never belonged to. And that's when we see the result of idolatry at work in a follower of God. Jonah forgot who he was as a child of God, he forgot who he was as a prophet of God. He knew he was a Hebrew. He knew the nation for which he belonged. He knew he was not on the side of the Assyrians. And he knew all too well of the misery and bedlam and violence and murder and torture that Ninevites were responsible for. All of that's true and correct. But he wanted them to pay. The thought of them not paying for their crimes, their sins. The thought of them receiving any semblance of mercy from God just sickened Jonah. Why? Because good things became God things, and thus Jonah had forgotten that he too was a recipient of mercy. When believers care more for their own interests than for the salvation of others, we look just like Jonah, but we do not look like Jesus. When believers care for more for their own security, their own safety, than for the salvation of others, we look just like Jonah. We do not look like Jesus. When believers care more about their own economic flourishing over the good of others or the advancement of the gospel throughout the world, we look just like Jonah. Jonah, we do not look like Jesus. These are signs that our identity isn't rooted in Christ, but in something else, in another agenda that might be a good thing, but shouldn't be a God thing. It's a sign that our identity has stopped being affected or informed by the the word of God. It's a sign that our identity is not affected or informed by the mercy we've received from God, and therefore We're not prone to rejoice over mercy being received by others and we flip the word of God on its head in James 2 and think judgment is better than mercy. Judgment should triumph over mercy. But God says, that's not how I roll. I will judge the wicked. I'll rejoice over, sing over, celebrate the fact that I extend mercy and grace to those who wouldn't stand a chance without it because mercy triumphs over judgment. What about you? Do you rejoice and long for people to receive the mercy of God? Or are there ways that that might affect you or me, our well-being, our livelihood, our whatever? We're like, yeah, I feel like judgment would be so much better. Because God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked and neither should we. But here's something else. You need to know that those who show mercy to others do so because they've been shown mercy by God. Because by nature we're just like Jonah. Hopefully you've had some compassion on Jonah. You don't look at him and be like, that guy, I'd never do what he did. I'm pretty sure we would exist with every single temptation of the flesh that Jonah had as well. And I think as I've spent time in the book of Jonah, I I understand why he did what he did. I really do. Understand what he was thinking. Understand why. And you're like, I would never disobey God if he spoke to me. It's like, really, have you ever disobeyed God when he's written to you? And so that's just a small cry from him speaking to you. It's not really the medium. It's the message that we're disobeying, right? And so I get it. I get why he did what he did. By nature, we're just like Jonah. No judgment. Like, I get it, bro. But we're called to be less like Jonah and more like Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Matthew 18 and verse 33, Jesus says, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? Meaning, People who have received mercy are merciful. And so I think we need to understand that this is an important discussion to have and something to consider. Not because we're a bunch of, bunch of nice people trying to be nicer, right? This isn't like Midwest nice. Like that's not what we're talking about. This is actually a litmus test for where we stand with the Lord. Forgiven people forgive people. Those who have received mercy are They themselves merciful because they've been so impacted by the mercy of God. I put a quote in there from John MacArthur from his commentary on the book of James. He says this, if you come before the judgment seat of God and he sees that you have lived a life that is merciful to others, he will show mercy to you because your mercy will testify to your saving faith. It will be true in your case that what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Contrarily, a person who has lived a life devoid of mercy to others will show himself to be without saving Faith. Because people who are filled with mercy and have received mercy, are they themselves merciful to others? People who are not merciful to others don't have mercy to give. They've not received it. By nature, we are more like Jonah, but by the gospel, we can be more like Jesus. And maybe you say, you know what, I want to... I want, to, I want to be that. I want to be more like Jesus in this way. I don't want to be, I don't want to love justice. I don't think I'm called to love justice. I don't think I'm called to do justly. Great, yes and amen. I want to be merciful. And so you can go out and commit to being more merciful. You can make it a, a matter of prayer. You can try to do one merciful thing a day. You can try to make it a habit. You can set it up as a goal. I love setting goals. It's great. You can keep it on a little, you can track it. All of that is good. I'm not mocking it. I want to tell you something for sure that you can take to the bank. Your best motivator for being merciful is a consistent reminder of the mercy you've received through the gospel. Your best motivator for being... You want a motivator? It's not going to be this guy. I'm going to stop preaching. It's not going to be you hearing this message over again. The best motivator for being merciful is a consistent reminder to yourself that you've received mercy through the gospel. Because, friends, mercy motivates mercy. Mercy motivates mercy. Mercy received is what brings about mercy given. Mercy motivates mercy. And as you read through the Gospels, as you read through the New Testament, as you read through the Bible, which hopefully you do consistently, what you will start to see is that with the imperatives that God gives us, it's usually very closely related to a reminder of the fact that you've been saved, that you've received mercy, that you've been born from above. It's not just, just do this just because. Just obey. Obedience is great, but it's never far from a solid why that's rooted in a reminder to you that you've received mercy. And that's how God has constructed his word. He doesn't say, just do it. He says, just do it because, and he points back to the gospel. Just do it because, and he points back to grace. He points back to mercy. He reminds you, you want to do this because you've been a recipient of mercy. And so I have a, just a sampling of verses that came to my mind, and it's in your outline. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brother, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, let's say we take that, and we just take out that phrase, by the mercies of God, right? The sentence still makes sense. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. There's still, a, still an imperative, still something for me to do. I see what he's telling me. Great. But instead, Paul says, but there's a reason. Here's here's, how I'm bake, here's how, what I'm basing my appeal on. I'm making my appeal based on the mercies of God. You want to present your bodies and dedicate your life as a living sacrifice before the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? By the mercies of God, because you've received mercy. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget the gospel. Don't leave that back from when you were saved, but now you've moved on to bigger things. There's nothing bigger than the cross or the gospel. And so that's what motivates us towards Christian living. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, from whom whom you have from God? You are not your own. There's so many times, so... trust. 14 years in student ministry. So many times where this verse would be referenced in, in, a, in a sermon or a lesson on sexual purity. It's not inappropriate. But it's like, don't you know that body of yours is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you want to keep it clean? Sure you do. Like, that's, that's, that's not wrong. That's just not motivating. What's motivating is the next part. For you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Oh, wow. This is not mine. Not only is it not mine, it was paid for dearly on the cross, dearly by the blood of Christ. That's a different motivation other than just clean up your life. What motivates you? It's the mercies of God. I've received mercy. Jesus died for my sins. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. Where did God in Christ forgive me? He forgave me at the cross. What did he do? He sent his son to die for me. I've received mercy. There's a mercy motivator again. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and following. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Well, great. Let's do that. But then he goes on. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so there's a motivator there. Why should we walk in love? Because Christ what? Loved us and gave himself up for us. Another reminder of mercy. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And What? Gave himself up for her. What does that remind me of? That reminds me of the grace and the mercy that I received because of Jesus' sacrificial death. Mercy motivates mercy. Having received the mercy of God is the most effective, longest-lasting motivation for walking in obedience by extending mercy toward others. What about you? As you read the Bible, how much of it? All of it. How much are you reminded of the mercy and grace of God? I would implore you. I would challenge you. I would encourage you. Wherever you are in your Bible reading, do so with an eye peeled for the grace of God. Do so with an eye peeled for mercy. Say, Lord, if you want to remind me of your mercy, show it to me. I think you'll see it. I think it's more prevalent and more present in our Bibles than we realize. And here ends our time in the book of Jonah. The book ends rather abruptly, doesn't it? Kind of doesn't resolve. It ends with a rhetorical question. Only two books in the Bible, Jonah and Nahum, do that. I've never been much for choose your own adventure. I was like, I don't even know how it ends. It's kind of similar to the prodigal son, right? Right? The father talks to the older son and says, it's good that we celebrate your your brother. He was dead, but now he's alive. He's lost and is found. I don't know what happens after that. I don't know. Does the older son go, you're right, Dad. Oh, shucks. Let's go celebrate. Or is he like, peace, and goes in the opposite direction? Or does he get more mad? Or does he throw his own party? I don't know what he does. The abrupt ending kind of plays well with our own lives, though, if you think about it, because... We're still in process, right? Our story has not ended. We are alive. We are breathing. Our story from a human perspective is still being written. We have time yet before us. We don't know how much, but time yet before us to honor the Lord in the life that he's given us. And you and I have an opportunity to have a better ending than Jonah's, if we're saved, and desires to be more like our Savior and less like ourselves. I'm pretty sure Jonah wrote Jonah. I'm pretty sure Jonah wrote Jonah. There's a level of detail of what happens on the inside of the belly of the fish that could have only been written by Jonah or the fish, and the fish lacks thumbs. I'm pretty sure Jonah wrote Jonah. If you think about it, if Jonah wrote Jonah, that's actually pretty encouraging to me as to how Jonah's story ended. Because I can't think of a reason apart from the sovereign grace and mercy of God for any human being wanting to write down for all eternity poor record of how he acted other than saying, but I've been changed. I've been saved. This is who I was. I want people to know the main character of my story is not me, but the main character is who? God. And so it ends abruptly, but I'm actually kind of encouraged by it. You might be sitting here today saying, "All this, be merciful, because you've been shown mercy." I'm. I mean, maybe that's ringing a bell with someone, but it's not for me. I, I don't. I don't think I've received mercy. In fact, I'm almost certain I haven't. I don't have this peace, this assurance that God has taken care of my greatest, my greatest need. In fact, I feel pretty. Needy, pretty guilty, pretty distant from him, his goodness. In fact, I don't know that he wouldn't judge me today if I were to meet him. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd fall short. Uh, chances are, you're, no, not chances are, you're right. If you think that, you're right. You think, I'm pretty sure if God judged me today, I'd fall short, uh, 100%. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three. But God has given us a gift of mercy. And listen to me, O oh, oh doubter. Listen to me, O oh fearful person. Uh, if you are fearful that God will send you to hell, uh, that fear will become realized. You are uh, both hell-bound and hell-deserving. You're a sinner born a sinner, Your life shows that you're a sinner. Your thoughts, your affections by themselves, they show that you are like me or like everybody else in this room. You are a sinner. You have a very real reason to be concerned. Make no mistake, though. God would rather you repent. God would rather you be saved. Will he send you to hell? Yes. Will he apologize? Zero. Not at all. He would rather pluck you out of the fire and bring you into the family of God. There's a preference. He'll do either. He prefers one over the other. And so this day, this day, while you hear the mercy of God preached to you, this day, you need to understand that, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you're headed to hell. Yes, that's what you deserve. There's nothing wrong with that. But God would prefer that you embrace the reality of the fact that His Son, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life so that he could die on the cross a perfect death and that God the Father was satisfied fully and that your sin syndic was paid in full by what Jesus did on the cross. And he was buried and he rose from the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. And if you, worrier, you fearful person, you who can't get that thought out of your mind of, of, I don't know that I got this mercy thing. If you believe, believe that Jesus Christ really is who he said he is. Really did what we read in the Bible that he did. Really paid for sinners like you and like me. You will be saved. Not a little saved. Not saved or it's not even a word you will be saved from spiritual death to spiritual life god doesn't delight in your judgment he'd rather you receive mercy he'd rather you repent he'd rather you trust his son what god would prefer is not in question the question is what you would prefer What about you? Will you place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation? Receive the mercy that is offered you this day? Or would you rather go it alone? God prefers that you'd repent. God prefers that you receive mercy God loves sinners like you and like me, and for that we rejoice. God, we come to the end of this time in a portion of your holy word, and we're grateful. Uh, grateful to be reminded of you being the main character of all of Scripture. Uh, grateful that you save to the uttermost. We are certainly grateful that mercy triumphs over judgment. We're grateful that there's not a daily battle for those of us who have been saved. Will mercy win today? Will it not? But you, Lord, save to the uttermost. Christ, all that the Father gives you will come to you, and you will in no way, shape, or form cast them away. We thank you for the certainty that we have in the gospel. Lord, I pray that that certainty today would Remind those of us who love you of who we are in Christ. Would cause us to want to extend the mercy that we've received to others. And Lord, for your glory, for your fame, would you save souls today. Give them a taste of saving grace and mercy for the very first time. Amen.